0: Thank you so much for um, being here today. Uh, Today we are concluding a series um, that we started just a few weeks ago called Plastic Pork Chops. Um, And if you were here with us that week, you know, I told a story about um, my daughter on Christmas morning who was then two years old receiving this play kitchen for Christmas. And along with that play kitchen receiving a box full of plastic food and how that afternoon... She spent all of this time making plates of plastic food and bringing those plates of plastic food to me. And I told you that week um, that plastic is not something I normally eat. Um, It doesn't taste good. It's not good for me, provides no nutrition. Um, However, every time she would bring me a plate of plastic food, I would act like it was the best thing in the world. I would pretend to eat it. I would give her her empty plate back and she'd rush off and she'd make another plate of food for me and come back. And I said, even though I did not need or want plastic food, I did want the heart of my daughter. And so I acted like it was a big deal because it brought her back to me. And even though I did not want or need plastic pork chops to eat, I did want the heart of my daughter, and it strengthened our relationship. And so I talked about the fact that this reminds me of a a biblical principle, that God does not need anything that we bring to him. The Bible is very clear that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns all the currency that has ever been printed or minted throughout all of history, God owns it all. All and yet God asks us to give not for His sake, but for our sake. And that week I said the Bible has three main reasons that we are to give. Uh, the first reason is that through giving, giving grows my trust in God, and so we looked at a passage from the Old Testament book of Malachi. Uh, Where in Malachi, the people of Israel were not tithing as God had instructed. Going all the way back to Genesis, God says, Look, everything that you have comes from me. 100% of what you have comes from me. What I want you to do is you keep 90%. I want you to give 10% back to me. And the nation of Israel had refused to do that. And so God said, Look, you're robbing me of what is rightfully mine. And you're doing it because you think at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, you won't have enough if you give. And so he said, trust me in this. Or actually, test me in this. I'm God. I own it all. Give like I've instructed you to give. And when you do, just watch and see how I more than provide for you. And we talked about that week that how money is such a big deal, it's such a powerful thing in our lives, that if we can learn to trust God in the financial area of our lives, everything else is easy. That if we can learn to trust God with our money, we can learn to trust God with everything else as well. And so the first reason God asks us to give is because giving grows our trust in God. The reason number two is that giving grows my heart for God. And so we talked about that week how some people trust God, but they do not have a heart for God. In other words, they view their relationship with God as a transactional relationship. So God, I do my part and then you do your part. I give and then you do what you're supposed to do. And they trust God, but there's not a heart for God. And we talked about how throughout throughout scripture, giving is also a way that our heart grows closer to God. And we looked at uh, Matthew 6:21, Where Jesus said, where your treasure goes, where your money goes, there your heart will follow. And how as we give to God, our heart for God grows. The first two reasons that we are instructed to give have to do with our relationship with God. The third reason that God instructs us to give has to do with our relationship with money. And so giving reason number three is that giving releases us from the power of money. Giving releases us from money having a hold on our lives. Money is such a powerful force that it has the potential to do a couple of things both to us and in us. The first is this. Money can cause us to make really bad decisions. Our need for, our desire for, our love for money will cause us to make incredibly immoral decisions. Decisions that otherwise we would not make. Let's look at the first part of a verse found in 1 Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 6.10, and it's a verse that is likely very familiar to you. Here's what we read. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Here's my guess. Most of you in this room have heard of this before. In fact, some of you, you may have heard this phrase before and you didn't know it came from the Bible. Now, your grandmother would say it and you thought it was just a grandma-ism, just something that she would say, you know, money is the root of all evil. Okay, grandma, well, I'll be careful then. Or maybe you thought it came from the farmer's almanac or Aesop's fables or something like that. You've heard it. You've seen it before. You knew that it was a saying that was out there, but you didn't know that it it came from scripture. Well, here's where we find this truth: that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a very common saying, and it's a truth that we see playing out all the time. Several years ago, I came across an article about a guy named Aruj Khan. As you might can guess from his name, Aruj Khan immigrated to this country from India. He landed in Illinois, and there in Il- Illinois, he opened a dry cleaners that was very successful uh, until the Great Recession hit, and he, like many other people, began to struggle. And he was going through very hard times until, in 2013, Mr. Kahn bought a scratch-off lottery ticket and won a million dollars. Suddenly, he was, he was free of his problems. Suddenly, he had all of this wealth. Here's a picture of Mr. Khan and his winning million-dollar lottery ticket. Now, he decided to take the lump sum payout, which after taxes meant that he would receive a check for $425,000. Thank you, Mr. Taxman, for taking all of the rest of it. But still, $425,000, not too bad for just scratching off a... Of- few numbers on a lottery ticket. So he was very excited. The officials with the Illinois State Lottery said, it'll be a, be a few weeks, but you will get your check for $425,000. He was very excited, except poor Mr. Kahn never saw one dime of that money. Just a few days after winning the lottery ticket, Mr. Kahn died. The medical examiner, Looked at it and said originally that it was natural causes until Mr. Kahn's brother went to the medical examiner and said, Would you investigate this a little bit further? They took some tissue samples and they discovered that Mr. Kahn had been poisoned by cyanide. Suddenly his wife was a suspect, his daughter was a suspect, and his father-in-law was a suspect. Unfortunately, they were never able to pull enough evidence together to convict any of them. But what they are pretty sure of is that one of those individuals murdered Mr. Khan to get that $425,000. They don't know who, but they know that someone performed this evil act because of their love for money. We get this. We know that the love of money will cause people to do things that otherwise they would not do. They will commit murder. They will steal. They will lie because money can wield this kind of power over our lives and cause us to act in ways we would normally not act in. That's the first danger of money. Money can cause us to do all of these things that are evil, but that is not the greatest danger of money. The greatest danger of money, the most destructive power of money, is the fact that it can keep us from God. Go back to 1 Timothy 6. Here is the last part of verse 10. The first part we read earlier. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Murder, lying, adultery. We know that. Then he goes on and says, Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you see that? It's not just committing acts of uh, of evil, but some people have actually wandered from the faith. In other words, money is so incredibly powerful that it can cause us to replace God in our hearts with money we end up serving wealth as our god our decisions are based on what will get us more of this god uh, we will think and act in ways only to please this particular god and if god is your mo- i mean if money is your god then you will make whatever sacrifices are necessary to get more of this particular god The best example in Scripture of someone who took wealth and made wealth their God is found in Luke chapter 18. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, Luke is in your New Testament. Uh, It comes right uh, after Mark, just before the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a story that's found in Luke 18. Um, This is towards the end of the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus had been alive for three years. He had been in and out of the city of Jerusalem. He had been throughout the nation of Israel. He had been teaching, performing miracles. Jesus at this point in his ministry had become a household name in Israel. Most people loved Jesus. Wherever he went, huge crowds would come. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to Wanted him to perform miracles. When they talked about Jesus, they talked about him in a positive sense. They loved getting to see and to witness the ministry of Jesus. There were other individuals, though, individuals in power who hated Jesus because Jesus threatened the status quo for them. He threatened their power. And those were the individuals who, just a short time after this story, had Jesus arrested. And placed on a cross. However, there was one man who had a lot of money and a lot of power. He didn't hate Jesus. And in this story, we find him coming and seeking out Jesus to find out a big question that was haunting him. As he went to sleep at night, as he got up in the morning, as he was walking down the road, there was this question that was ruling his heart. In this tension that he just could not get rid of in his life. So here's the question it's Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's not a lot that we know about this individual. Luke here just refers to him as a certain ruler. Matthew gives an account of this story as well, and he calls him both rich and young. And so when we think of this individual, we normally describe him as a rich, young ruler. Now, later in the passage, we discover some things that also tell us that he was a good religious person. Meaning that he grew up in a family that had wealth that had some level of power they had been given a position of power over some segment of the population they had land they had livestock they had amassed some kind of wealth he grew up in this family that had all of this money but as well they were very devout in their faith they went to synagogue every week They memorized the scriptures. They memorized prayers. They participated in the religious festivals. They talked about God in their home. They were wealthy, but they were also very committed, religious, upstanding citizens in Israel. And yet for this young man, this rich young ruler, there developed this tension in his life. He had grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had access to all the comforts of life, anything that he wanted, anything that he needed. And yet, he was also raised in a family that was very devout in their faith. And so this tension began to develop in his life. Would he have God or would he have wealth? Now, those are not mutually exclusive. There are many individuals in Scripture who have both. But for this young man, it was more than that. The question that was haunting him at night was this. Which of those, God or his wealth, would own his soul? Which of those ultimately would be his God? And so he tries to work out this tension that is in his life, and he hears that Jesus is coming close by. And so with Jesus coming close by, he thinks, hey, here's someone who can help me with this question. Here's someone who will have an answer. If there's anyone who can help me work out this tension, it is Jesus. And so he goes and he finds Jesus, and he gets right to the point. He doesn't bother with any sort of introductory comments. Hey, Jesus, my name is Joe. I'm a ruler around here. I don't know if you've heard I'm rich, you know, I'm young, that's how they describe me, Jesus, rich young ruler. I don't know if you've heard about me. You know, how are you doing, Jesus? How's your mama in them? You know, what's going on? with None of that. This guy is so torn up by this tension that is in his soul that he sees Jesus and he gets right to the point. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, stop there for a moment. There is no greater question that anyone can ask in life. There is no more significant question that you can ask than this question. What must I do? How must I live? What decision or decisions should I make in life so that I can know that I'm going to heaven? No other question compares in weight in significance, in consequences, nothing else. Who should I marry? What career path should I choose? Should I buy this house? What city should I live in? None of those. Those are questions that we struggle with so often, but none of them compare in significance to the greatest question that you can ever ask by a mile compared to every other question, which is, what must I do? to know that I am saved, to know that I will have eternal life. Now, fortunately for this rich young ruler, he gets to ask this question not just to anybody, but to Jesus himself. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's the answer. Verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, it's easy to get a little bit confused by this response of Jesus. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It seems that Jesus is rejecting the label of good. He is saying, oh, wait a second. You can't call me good. There's only one who is good, and that is God. It seems on the surface that Jesus is saying, I cannot be called good. Do not assign the label good to me. However, it's much deeper than that. What Jesus is saying for this rich young ruler and for those who are standing around listening is this. Hey, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. So, are you calling me God? And Jesus just leaves that rhetorical question kind of hanging out there. And then he goes on and answers the question of this rich young ruler. Verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus here gives five of the Ten Commandments, the ones that have to do with our relationships with others, the one that has has to do with how we should live out our faith in God. And on the surface, it seems that Jesus is saying, look, you want to inherit eternal life? Here's how you do it. Keep the rules. You've read the Ten Commandments. Obey the Ten Commandments, and that's how you'll get eternal life. It seems that Jesus is saying that on the surface. However, there's something much deeper. We'll see that as we read on. Verse 21. The rich young ruler answered, All of these I have kept since I was a boy. Okay, first of all, that's a lie. You've just violated one of the commandments because you're saying here that since you were a boy, you have never once lied. You have always, always honored your father and mother. Come on. There's just no way that you've kept these commandments perfectly. However, I think what he was saying here was this. It's not, hey, I have kept the law perfectly. What he was saying was this, is that I have worked really hard at keeping all of the commandments. This Rishon Rung, young ruler was saying to Jesus, look, I have tried my best to be a committed religious individual. Jesus, all you need to do is go and ask someone else. Go and ask others about me and they will say to you, hey, that's a guy who is devoted in his faith. He goes to synagogue. He, he doesn't cheat others, which is not always true with those who have positions of power. He's an honest guy. When he tells you something, he will do what he says He will do. He will will tell you the truth. Here is an upstanding individual. Here is a good guy. And yet for this rich young ruler, he knew deep down that it just wasn't enough. That as good as he had been, something deep inside him was still missing. And that that was missing is what brought him to Jesus that day. He may have been very moral. He may have been very religious. And yet, he still didn't have this assurance that he had eternal life. It's like he was saying to Jesus, look, I have been such a good guy. And yet, 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 something's not there, Jesus. So here's how Jesus responded. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him you still lack one thing sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come and follow me so notice the formula that Jesus gives to this young man here's the question he comes and says look Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life how how can i know that i'm going to heaven and Jesus said, okay, you want to go to heaven? Here it is. It's a three-step formula. Number one, sell everything that you have. That's, that's the first thing you need to do. Step two, give it all to the poor. Step three, come and follow me. And then, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you will have salvation. Then you will have eternal life. Why does Jesus give this formula to this rich young ruler? He didn't give this to others. There were plenty of other people where he had an encounter with them and they discussed salvation. They discussed eternal life. And Jesus never said, okay, now here's the formula for salvation. Sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, follow me, and then you'll get into heaven. Even to wealthy individuals, he did not give that three-step formula. Even to Zacchaeus, who was very wealthy, he did not say, sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. And that's how you can know you're going to heaven. Why in this particular case, to this particular young man, did he say to him, if you want eternal life, here's what you need to do. Sell it all, give it to the poor, and follow me. Here's why. Notice his answer in verse 23. When he, when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Here's the answer. Jesus looked into the heart of this young man and he understood that in his heart, his God was money. That sitting on the throne of his heart was not the God of Israel, but seated on the throne in his heart was his wealth. It was the anchor buried so deep into his life. It it was It was what he saw as all of his security in life. More than anything else, he worshipped his wealth. And Jesus recognized here that the only way to release this man from the power of his stuff was to get rid of his stuff. If he did not, if he did not get rid of all of his possessions, then his allegiance and his trust and his wealth Uh, And his hope would always be in his wealth rather than in God. This young man recognized just what had happened in his heart. And, And he saw how destructive it was. Because notice his response to Jesus. It says when he heard this, he became very sad. He did not reject this three-step formula of Jesus and then just walk away. He rejected this three-step formula of Jesus and walked away sad. In other words, he gave up the joy of following Christ for the sadness of his wealth. His money had that much power over him. In this story, we see a picture of just how destructive and dangerous money can be. The power to actually keep us from God. You and I can fall victim to money in exactly this same way, where our lives become so anchored in money that, that there's no other way for us to follow God than removing this in a major surgical procedure from our lives. And sometimes, just like in the story, it becomes nearly impossible. After this rich young ruler rejected Jesus' offer of salvation, here's what Jesus said about it. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus did. He reinforced for all of those listening what they had just witnessed in the life of this individual. For this young man, this wealthy young man, here he was so owned by money that he turned and walked away sad. You see, we read a story like this about this wealthy guy and we say, man, he owned a lot of money. But then you read the the whole story and you go, no, he didn't. He didn't own any of his money. It owned him. His money owned him and told him what to do. His money said to him, you go here, you do this, you say this, you act in this way. And when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes directly to this young man and says, here, here is beautiful salvation, here is eternal life, here is the promise of heaven, His God money said, nope, you can't do that. I'm sorry, you can't make that decision. You can't follow uh, Jesus. I own you, and so you're not able to do it. Money had him so trapped that he could not make another choice. A lot of times people will ask me what kind of music I like to listen to. I don't know why they asked that. I, th- I think the intent behind the question is they want to know if I listen to anything that's not Christian so that they will have permission to listen to secular music as well. I think that's why they asked me that question. What kind of music do you listen to? So here's my normal answer. Um, one, for the last dozen or so years, most of the music I have listened to has fallen under the same category with the song The Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round. <laughs> If you're in that stage of life, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I can quote almost verbatim all of the VeggieTales songs. I have listened to them as they have played on the DVD player as we're writing somewhere, and, and they are just seared into my brain. If anyone around me ever loses a hairbrush, I am right there singing that song, all of those songs. So for the last dozen years or so, that has been the genre of music that has most dominated my life. However, before kids, back when I was cool, um, there were basically uh, three types of music that I listened to. And so here are the artists, and this will will help you out. So anything by Van Morrison, anything by Counting Crows, and I know about half of you, you have no idea what I just talked about there. And older country music, Uh, I tend to like older country music, and one of my favorite country singers is George Strait. I, old George Strait songs, just love those old George Strait songs. And one of my favorites is a song that he sang called Amarillo by Morning. Now, he did not actually write that song, he just made it famous. And in the song, he portrays himself as a poor cowboy on the rodeo circuit uh, trying to make it in the rodeo. And he's traveling all around Texas trying to hit it big in the rodeo. Now, George Strait has more wealth than any of us in this room, but in the song, he's this poor cowboy going around Texas in some old beat-up truck trying to make it in the rodeo. If you're you're familiar with George Strait, you're familiar with this song, and you're familiar with the verse in this song. So here it is. This is George Strait, Amarillo by Morning. Here's the verse. Amarillo by Morning, up from San Antonio. So he's going to a rodeo in Amarillo, coming up from San Antonio. Everything that I've got is just what I've got on. So here's the poor cowboy. All that he owns is what he's wearing. I ain't got a dime, but what I've got is mine. I ain't rich, but Lord, I'm free. I know you want to sing the rest of it, don't you? Amarillo by morning. Amarillo's where I'll be. Here's what he says. I ain't got a dime, but what I've got is mine. I ain't rich, but Lord, I'm free. Now, again, George Strait has a whole lot of dimes far more dimes than what I've got, but in this story, here he is, this poor cowboy, and he doesn't own anything, but what is he? He is free. I think somewhere when George Strait was singing this song and he was planning to sing this one that had already been written, he realized just how much wealth he had acquired and how acquiring all of this wealth can trap you, and and that That money, while it is a great tool, is a lousy God. And that when you're free of money, you're you're free. So how do we, as individuals, fight the trap of money? How do we keep money from becoming our God? And here's what we need to know. Compared to the rest of the world, every one of us in this room is wealthy. If you ate breakfast this morning... And you will probably eat again today. You are a wealthy individual. Now, I know there are degrees of wealth within our nation, but we are an incredibly wealthy nation. And so, if you see here today, if you live in this country, you are a wealthy person. So, how do we keep ourselves from falling into the trap of wealth? Here's how we do it the Bible's very clear on it. Uh, we do it through giving our money away through generosity. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and this is later in the passage. Here's what Paul wrote. Command those who are rich in this present world, that is us, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. So here's what he's saying to us today. Do not be arrogant thinking, hey, this this is all mine. I mean, I earn this, I own this, it's all mine. Paul is saying here in this passage to recognize that everything that you have comes from God and to be careful not to put your hope in wealth. To say, oh boy, my 401k, it's big, and boy, I've got a lot of hope in my wealth because, you know, that's going to grow to a certain size, and I'm going to be able to go on easy street once this, this account's at a certain size. Do not put your hope in wealth because it is so uncertain. If you have lived through any of the stock market dips, you understand just how uncertain it is that what we have can be gone in an instant. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So here Paul is echoing what we saw in the story earlier, where Jesus said it is hard for the rich to get into heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Paul is saying, here's... For those of you that are wealthy, here's a warning. Watch out. Money can capture you so quickly that you put your hope in it, that you think this is where your certainty lies. So there's this, this big warning flag that Paul puts up here. He says, do not put your hope in wealth. And then here's the key. Here's how practically we do this. Verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and here it is, and to be generous And willing to share. That is the word used throughout the New Testament, generosity. That as we are generous with what God has given to us, it fights against the disease of greed. And he goes on, In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Here is the other lie that we buy into, that the good life is when we get enough money. When we have achieved the American dream, then we're on easy street. Then we've got it made. Then we have life that is really life. And Paul says that is nothing but a mirage. If you want the life that is truly life, it is only found through Jesus Christ, not in your money, not in your wealth. Be careful, he says, not to buy into the lie that that... Is truly life so how do we fight against this here it is through generosity the antidote to the to the disease of greed is through giving back to God a portion of what he has given to us and this is not automatic now this is not something that we do one time and then it's and then it's over and then you know then we're released from greed forever it's a lot like exercise if you say hey I'm gonna get in shape I need to get in shape. And you go out and you run two miles and you say, okay, I'm done. I've gotten in shape. That's all I've got to ever do. No, it's something that you have to do over and over and over again to stay in shape. And fighting against greed is the same way. It's not a one and done kind of thing, but it's as we become uh, good at giving away what God has given to us, as we develop a character of generosity, then here's what happens. We are able to get the right perspective on our money and we're able to say money you are a phenomenal tool but you are a lousy god and you don't own me and i'm not going to let you tell me what to do the way that we get to that place is through generous consistent giving